a Podcast One production. Ever since George Orwell wrote 1984, we've been haunted by the specter of Big Brother. You know what I mean. The government, the totalitarian state, using its perfect surveillance to completely control every movement of your life. A kind of living death under observation. And we know this story so well. We know when things start to feel too much like 1984. And we've all seen little inroads. We've seen Facebook watch our every move online. We've seen Google track our movements, our commuting, our visits to the bush. We've seen all of it. And we don't seem to care that much unless, unless the government does it. Then it's all jackboots and truncheons and room 101. And look. You can see what's going on in China these days. You can make a completely fair assessment that networked surveillance authoritarianism is a legit thing. And we're all quite aware of what the government can do, even if we choose not to think about it. It doesn't mean we're not aware. But what happens when Big Brother presents another face, when he's no longer the stern face of authority, but someone who's more caring, someone who only has our best interests at heart. Should we, could we dare love Big Brother? Good day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and maintain our health. In this time, in the middle of a global pandemic, that's not just an idle wish. It's something we all need. And digital technologies, they can help us with that. But like all gifts, they come at a price. Should we be scared about an app on our phone that tracks our proximity to others? Is that the next step along the path to digital totalitarianism? Do we need to be scared? On this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we're going to look at the bright side of surveillance, of big data, of profiling, and all the things we spent so much time being very wary of. It's October 2005. Now, I am standing on a platform at Central Station in Sydney, and I am waiting for a train to take me to work. It's the morning commute, so the platform is crowded. I'm staring at my mobile. Now, because this is 2005, that mobile is not a smartphone. It's what we would call a feature phone today. By the standards of 2005, it was actually pretty snazzy. It had a camera. It ran all sorts of apps. It even had this new thing called Bluetooth. Bluetooth was really interesting to me because, well, I started my career in computer networking, and anything that connects two computers together has a tendency to fascinate me. And Bluetooth was supposed to be this thing that was going to connect everything to everything else. And... That does feel a lot more true 15 years later, but back in 2005, it was just kind of aspirational. 
But most of the high-end mobiles on sale back in 2005 did have Bluetooth, and that meant that one mobile could connect to another mobile. They could send messages back and forth. They could send photos back and forth and songs and phone numbers and contact info and whatever else you wanted to share over your phone. These are things we don't even think about today because all of our phones do them. But at the time, it seemed kind of wondrous. This was the dawn of the era of sharing when we first became able to share everything we wanted from all of our devices all of the time. And much of that sharing was enabled by Bluetooth. So I was fascinated by Bluetooth. I was fascinated by its low power, by its short range, because really Bluetooth doesn't work more than, say, five meters. And I was fascinated by the fact that it was probably going to be in almost all of the mobiles really soon. That last bit was interesting because it meant that I could actually count all of the mobiles that were around me. And that was what I was doing that October morning on the train platform. I'd written a little app to send out little pings on Bluetooth to all of the devices nearby, and then I collected the result. You can think of it as shouting out a cooey to all of the neighbors and then hearing the neighbors cooey in response. And why did I find that interesting? Why was I trying to do this? Well, initially... I was trying to see how I could help my mobile understand where I was in my day. Because my weekdays had a certain pattern. I would get up, have breakfast, I'd travel to work, I'd put in my hours at the office, I would travel home, I'd eat and then go to bed. And that meant it was actually possible for me, at least I thought it would be possible for me, for my phone to know which of those activities I was engaged in just by listening to the number of Bluetooth mobiles that were around me. So let me explain what I mean, what my app was showing me. When I was at home in the morning, I wouldn't see any other Bluetooth devices. There weren't any others in the house. Now, when I went to the platform to wait for my train as I was that morning, I would see heaps and heaps of them. And then I'd go to the office, I'd see a few And then again, on the way back home, heaps and heaps of them. And then again at home, no other devices. So I thought this could be a big, powerful hint for any app that was running on my phone to kind of know where I was running the app. And remember, this is before the smartphone. So no phones had GPS in them. My mobile had no idea where it was or what I was doing. And I was using Bluetooth to help give my mobile the hint that it needed so that it would know where I was and more or less what I was doing. And it meant that my mobile could maybe change what it was doing based on what I was doing. So it could be responsive to my needs. That's, that's what I was trying to prove that day on the train platform. And it worked. And I wrote up the results of my research. I presented them at a conference in Sydney a couple of months later. And I showed everyone my work. I guess I just really hadn't understood what I'd done or what it could be used for. Because almost accidentally, I'd invented something that 15 years later has suddenly become very important and very useful. Let me explain what I mean. Now, a few months after I did that little experiment... I began a collaboration with my friend, the artist John Tonkin. We took the work that I had been doing with Bluetooth, and well, I'll let John explain. 
Well, we became interested in the idea that we might be able to use this to track the way that people might come together and, you know, who was hanging out with who. So we proposed this for a international art conference, um, the International Symposium on Electronic Art, and the project developed from there. And so it was really a very nice partnership because I had already developed this technology that could kind of ping all of the devices and bring it back in. And you're really good at doing all the data analytics and taking the information that I had and making it both useful and actually really pretty for people. Yeah, so we built a backend that was kind of just looking for connections and it was really pretty simple stuff in reality. And then a a Java applet that was making a visualization of that. And what was fun about it is when we got to San Jose, so this is San Jose, California, which is where we installed it. We basically asked everyone to turn on their Bluetooth devices so that they could be seen. And then we put all of these sensors up around the convention center where it was being held so that we could sort of just the ping those devices when people were walking by. Yeah. And given that phones are by default, responding to these messages, that was a pretty easy thing to do. Admittedly, though, the state of Bluetooth at the time was a little bit patchy. So, you know, we'd have to encourage people to turn the Bluetooth on. If people had a smart enough feature phone, they could download the app. They themselves could then start to read in all of this data and share it with us. And we were also collecting all of this data. And I think we were both surprised because we spent a good week that the conference was happening collecting all of this data. And then we basically pressed the button and we saw these pretty maps pop up of all of these collections of people. Yeah, we were kind of aware that we might uncover some untoward (laughs) behavior, conference romances. (laughs) Hidden relationships, yeah. But I think what was interesting for us was that we we were kind of doing it in a somewhat innocent sort of way, I think, in that we weren't especially interested in the surveillance aspect of it, although obviously we were, I guess, but that we were kind of just interested in the idea of the relationships that were formed and that particularly given that a conference is about potential spontaneous relationships, you know, just being able to map that out. Right, and just sort of show how people were hanging out. So maybe showing them things that they didn't know about how they were hanging out. So now that we're seeing Bluetooth apps that do pretty much the same thing, do you reckon that there's a straight line between what we were doing back in 2006 and what's going on today? I guess so. Um, I must confess I haven't really followed it that closely. So I don't exactly understand what like I, I gather Bluetooth beacons are kind of doing a similar sort of thing. Yes, but Bluetooth beacons, which are used in department stores or in malls to sort of show how people are passing through them, they're, they're fixed to a point in space. And so that, that is somewhat similar to what we were doing to show how people are moving through a space. But in fact, what we were doing was showing how people are related in proximity rather than related inside of a space. And there's a, there's a, a conceptual difference there that's not around tracking where you are but tracking who you're with. John, thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you. So back in September 2006, John and I publicly demonstrated the first app that did Bluetooth contact tracking. We used that information, which people offered up freely because it was part of a big art project. We used that information to create a social graph to show who was close to who simply by tracking the amount of time they spent around one another. It turns out that's exactly what this new generation of Bluetooth-based tracking apps do. But today we're doing it for a different reason. 
We're not trying to figure out who knows who. We're trying to figure out who's infecting who. And we know that most COVID-19 infections occur when people are in close proximity, so that's sort of within two meters, for at least 15 minutes. That's just how long, given the randomness of virus particles floating around in the air and all of the other factors, that's how long it takes to transmit an infection from one person to another person. So it would be good to know when people are in close proximity for that length of time. And Bluetooth can do that. In fact, Bluetooth does that far better now than when we did our work back in 2006 because the new generation called Bluetooth Low Energy, or BLE, can measure the signal strength of another BLE smartphone. The closer the two phones are, the stronger the signal between them. So you can kind of ignore the weak signals and keep a record of the strong signals if they linger for more than, say, 15 minutes. And that, at essence, is how all of these Bluetooth contact tracking apps work. It's all pretty much the same as what John and I did 14 years ago. And when we come back from the break, we'll take a look at the history of contact tracing and its future with one of this series' most popular guests. Welcome back to the next billion seconds. We're looking at the history and future of tracing our contacts using technology and specifically Bluetooth. Now, to help us unroll what all of that means and what it's meant in the past, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Genevieve Bell. Dr. Bell is the director of the 3AI Institute at the Australia National University and recently wrote an article for Technology Review, which we'll link to on the website about how we might want to think about and manage the new technology of contact tracking. Welcome back, Genevieve. Hey, Mark. It's nice to be here. All right. So in this article, you actually show that there's quite a long history of contact tracking. Where did it all develop from? So contact tracking or contact tracing has been a tool used by public health officials for over 100 years. Uh, it has multiple sort of early starting points, but you should imagine that it was used to track and think about contacts for things like typhoid in New York City, hence the way we remember the woman named Typhoid Mary. It was used to track venereal disease outbreaks and syphilis, as well as more recently AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases, and even more recently than that, measles. So it's always been a technique that sat inside the public health domain. And the idea about it was to say, can we take any person who we know is infected and work out who they have been in contact with to do two things. One, to work out who else might be infected and so vulnerable, but also to attempt to backtrack and work out why the infection might have been uh, collected from in the first place. So it's really, you know, it, com- it basically comes up at the same time as germ theory. When we realize that disease is spread by germs, which happens in the mid-19th century, more or less. And then we go, okay, wait a second. Now we actually know how the disease is being spread. That gives us a handle to be able to track, to trace the spread of a disease inside of a population. Absolutely. Though I think it's probably really important to remember that as it was developing, it is also part and parcel of some other more complicated conversations. So about fears of strangers and people from other countries, about fears of certain kinds of practices and certain kinds of otherness. And so public health uh, 
practices and some of the ways that contact tracing has unfolded over the last hundred years are also riven through with ideas about morality, ideas about fear, some ideas about shame, and certainly ideas about penalty and punishment. So it's not a in and of itself a neutral thing. Even the notion of the word and, contact there and the idea of tracing are both loaded terms. And I mean, you can see this quite clearly even from the history of the HIV epidemic, right? Where specific communities, IV drug abusers, gay men, Haitians in America had a population explosion as well, that these communities were stigmatized because they were associated with the contacts and the tracing of this. And you can now, I guess, even see this in some ways right now with the current pandemic around travelers from foreign countries, that everyone who's a traveler from a foreign country is now kind of immediately suspect. Are they a carrier of the disease? And here in Australia, we're literally locking them in a hotel room for 14 days, both because it's good public health, but because we we have the sense that we need to contain it. Well, and even the language of saying someone is infected is a language of a particular kind of notion, right? So I think, you know, as important as it is to think about this as a tool that has always existed inside public health, it's important to remember that the idea of public and health and even the sort of the notion of a well body are also all cultural ideas. And so the idea that this kind of apparatus or practice would be completely value neutral is probably foolish. All right. So now we actually get to the current moment where we have this apparatus being deployed at scale. We saw the first apps showing up in Singapore and in Taiwan that start to use Bluetooth proximity-based tracking and tracing so that people could tell sort of who you've been around to tell whether you potentially are infected or infecting, which is the other side of the coin. How do we need to start to think about this technology? Is it going to be well-managed? And and what are the different kinds of use cases here? So, Mark, I think before you even go there, you need to think about what was it that public health officials were doing when they were contact tracing before these apps existed, right? So we can say contact tracing, but actually it was a fairly complicated labor-intensive activity where you were interviewing an infected person and asking them to remember where they had been over the period of time in which they might have been infectious. So in this current pandemic, that's a fortnight. So you're asking people to unfold back two weeks of their lives. So you want to know where they've been, what they were doing, who they met. And any good interviewer in that context is asking a whole series of questions and asking someone to go back through all the different ways you have of reconstructing where you might have been. So even before these apps were being uh, utilised, we already had multiple jurisdictions, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, to a lesser extent, a couple of other countries who were asking a series of questions and utilising a series of data sets. So they were already looking at someone's um, phone records. They were looking at the cell phone tower pings. They were looking at credit card activity. They were already doing a degree of kind of unfolding of our digital footprint as a way of triggering an individual's memory. So what this current generation of apps, and it's funny to talk about a generation when we're talking about something that's maybe five weeks old, this current generation of apps aren't necessarily about the absolutes 
of the digital footprint. So this is not about your GPS stamp. It's not about a cell phone ping tower, telephone tower ping. So, so, and we need to be clear on this, the difference between proximity and location, right? Location's where you are, proximity's who you are around. Precisely. So I think it was the difference between absolute and relative location, because it doesn't matter where you absolutely were. It matters who was around you. <laughs> and let's be clear what these apps are hoping to do is suggest where there have been contacts, not to prevent them because, of course, it's backward-looking, not forward-looking, right? It's based on where you have been. So the current generation of technology that uses Bluetooth, of which the Trace and Track one in Singapore is probably the best-known example, is that what any given phone is doing, and a phone that has this, is it has a Bluetooth radio in it, and the radio is just pinging, (laughs) doing the moral equivalent of, hi, 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 with a number string next to it. It's not very interesting. And other phones around it, if they're also utilizing the app, are doing the same thing. And so any app is simultaneously a beacon in the listening station. And what it's doing is accumulating contact, basically, moments where you've been in contact. There's, of course, all kinds of things that need to be thought through here. Uh, we know battery life and Bluetooth is an issue. We know that proximity doesn't necessarily mean contact. No, because it could be the person upstairs. It could be the person in the room next door to you. It could be the person in a bus that stopped next to your bus at a traffic light. So proximity doesn't necessarily mean contact. Uh, At the moment, there are some interesting debates about how long do you need to have the devices proximate to each other? So how many times do you need to hear the Bluetooth say hello before you think that there's been contact? And so we're making decisions there about what we think is enough contact. And and all of these are literally best guesses right now. That's the thing. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you've got to have some other assumptions you're making, right? A little bit complicated if you imagine that there are people in the world who have more than one phone for all kinds of reasons, uh, or people who don't have a phone at all, or people whose phone is of a different generation, so it has an older Bluetooth that is not forward compatible, or people who turn off their Bluetooth because they're sick of it going, hello, hello, hello. (laughs) There's all kinds of kind of contingencies here that we're needing to think about. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the mistakes we've made in this conversation is conflating location and proximity. And then also imagining that if we could manage proximity, that that somehow stops us from being vulnerable. Whereas in fact, what it really is doing is it's part of a broader system of public health uh, interventions, right? You need to be able to contact trace, but you also need to have an aggressive testing regime. So you need to be testing people because there's no point contact tracing if you're not testing. Yeah. It doesn't prevent us from being vulnerable. It shows us where we've been vulnerable, right? It's backward looking. And effectively what it is then doing is potentially protecting other people around us because the third piece of the puzzle, right, you need to have contact tracing, you need to have an aggressive and repeated testing regime, which I suspect needs to be testing both for viral presence and then later for antibodies. You also need to have an agreed to set of protocols about quarantining so that if you are infected or potentially infected, we have an agreed to standard of what that looks like. So the contact tracing itself isn't the solution. It's part of a whole collection of things you need to do simultaneously. And the trick here is that in focusing on one piece of the puzzle, you sometimes lose focus on the others and it's all three of them that will be the, not the solution, all three of them that are the staged public health intervention. And of course, if you're someone who's contemplating thinking about the app, there's also other questions you're likely to be asking, like, 
Okay, so now you've said it's not absolute data, it's just proximate data, but that still means you know who I've been around. So who's going to see this data? What degree of anonymity is there really in this data? So you've said it's just a Bluetooth saying hi with a number string, but like, can you reverse engineer that back to me and who I hang around with? How long is that data being stored for? Will there be a point at which someone else wants access to that data and how could that happen? Will other assessments and judgments result on the basis of this data? All reasonable questions. And then I think there's a series of sort of further questions about what does it mean to say everyone should use this? How do we think about people for whom they don't either have a phone, they don't have Bluetooth. What does it mean to compel people, even if it's just through kind of social goodwill? There's multiple, for me, layers of questions. There's the technical questions, there's the data sort of sovereignty and hygiene and protection questions, there's the where does the data sit and who uses it later questions, <laughs> and then there's the what does this mean at a social level question. And oh, by the way, because this stuff's less than six to eight weeks old, even the countries we can look to that have had it would hardly be seen to be virus free at this point and they've all had multiple questions that are still operating in terms of what this might look like all right so what we have is a lot of questions <laughs> and an interesting technology though yeah but you're raising questions that are the what the right questions to be asking and there are also questions that i think a lot of people in the public who are being asked to install apps like this whether they're here or in singapore or in taiwan that maybe they haven't phrased as this but they're like oh, this is this feels different what's the social contract here so one of the arguments i sometimes hear rehearsed is people say well you know pick big companies, already got all my data. So like, how is this any different? Or I don't understand why you'd resist so-and-so already has all your data. And I think there's a subtle but important difference between our role as consumers and our role as citizens. And I think the request here is as, as our role as citizens, not as our role as consumers. The organizations that are asking for our engagement and ultimately our at least proximity data is a government, not an enterprise. And our relationship with government is a very different thing than our relationship with companies. And so when you ask what's the social contract, that's exactly the right question to be asking because it's a social contract. It's not a fiscal contract or the peppercorn deal we sometimes have with big companies, right? So the question here is what is the, the nature of that relationship? Is it one that says we believe that our government is uh, attempting to manage for a broader social good? And I think you could say in Australia, watching the unfolding of the last six to eight weeks, and we're now sitting in mid-April, you can make, I think, a very clear case that this has been a government who's had a very clear interest in the social good. This has been about a multi-pronged approach that has tackled everything from how do we do a better sense of preparedness in our hospitals to how do we think about economic safety nets across multiple vectors of the economy to how do we think about ensuring the best success for our populations moving forward. I mean, it has been clearly a social contract. And Australian citizens en masse have honoured their part of that contract by staying home, by, in fact, being very compliant to a set of requests and I think between both of us, our citizens and our government, we have been in the enviable and unenviable position of being able to do something that you and I can usually do, which is see the future. And we can see the future. Our future could be Italy. It could be Lombardy. It could be New York City. It could be Singapore. 
it could be London, right? We've seen what our future could look like. And so we are making decisions collectively at a societal level and at a governmental level to not have that be the future or to have that be a forestalled and more managed future. So the social contract is partly that, right? But we also need to remember that whatever is built here sits inside a regulatory framework that already exists, a framework in which Australians have a set of agreed to at a governmental and regulatory level, rules about how our data is collected and used, as do all the other nation states in which these apps are unfolding. So it was fascinating to me to look at how this was unfolding in Taiwan, which in some ways is a really interesting example for what has been used, partly because of the extraordinary sets of data that are being mobilized and combined. So in Taiwan, your travel data and your medical data are at the moment combined so that when you turn up to your GP's office, they know if you've been overseas and they'll put you through a different, literally through a different door in the clinic so that you're not necessarily coming into the main clinic. But the agreement there between government and citizens was that that combination of data would only last 30 days. So it had a sunset clause and the data would be disambiguated again. And let's remember, we have perfectly well-developed technical solutions to disambiguate data or to have data not be persistent. Yes. We have legal ways of doing it and we have technical ways of doing it. So for me, as I think about what would the nature of the social contract be, part of it is to remember that social contract's not a novel one. <laughs> the virus might be novel, the contract isn't. It sits inside a regulatory framework that is extant, a set of agreements that we already have both, I would say, at a kind of social level, but at a contractual level about what could things could look like here. And remembering that this isn't happening in a landscape of non-contention. Australians were arguing about privacy six weeks ago and six months yes. ago and six years ago. This didn't suddenly trigger a debate about privacy. That debate's been ongoing for, well, actually in Australia, decades. So thinking about what the nature of the social contract is, the piece that feels different is the timeliness of it and the request from government. But it's also the case that in the last six months, Australians have engaged at a civic and civil level with data uh, in ways that we didn't do before. I'm thinking about all the fire apps that we downloaded yeah. over the summer and about the way we talked about and thought about and understood data. This is a different request because it feels differently personal, but I think this is a conversation we've been in now for a little while. So that, does that mean that there is a path to overcoming our fear of Big Brother, that when we hand over this data, that this data will be turned against us, which is the the basic fear of Big Brother there? Listen, I think the nature of the democracies in which we live is that Big Brother is an appropriate cautionary tale. It's always an appropriate cautionary tale. The reason we have stories about ghosts and scary figures is to remind us that the world isn't always a safe place. There are dangers. And there are dangers to every governmental system and there are dangers to how power sits and is configured. So should we be paralyzed with fear about Big Brother? No. Should we be cautious and critical about how we engage with our democratic institutions? Always. Should we, as citizens, ask hard questions about what is going on and what we are participating in? Yeah. And should we ask those at the moments that are most inconvenient? Probably. I think there is, in fact, often a call to ask the hardest questions when the answer seems the easiest. But do I think we should be fearful? Listen, I think 
data is power. It always has been. And when people have data or make grabs for data, we should ask questions about why. But we also have a whole series of regulatory and legal and moral ways of arguing against that. And we should continue to do that. Genevieve, thank you very much for being on The Next Billion Seconds. It was my pleasure, Mark. Anytime. In the middle of a pandemic, it's very easy to make decisions that you will regret later in the name of expediency or pressure or fear or just not having the opportunity to think things through. And we really do need to have a think about these new digital technologies of tracking and tracing because we get them not just from the government but from retailers, from advertisers, from search engines, from social networks. These aren't really new things. They're new in the way they're being presented to us. They're new in the way they're going to be used to help us. They're new in that the government is asking us to do it. But through all of this, all of the time, there's always been the same basic needs. Transparency, Why are we being asked for this? What is going to be done with that? Probity, taking a look at the whole set of people involved. Are their motives transparent? Are their activities transparent? Are the benefits that they are receiving going to be transparent? And then openness, you know, This is all about code at this point. This is about an app. This is about systems that will store data. All of that actually can be revealed. All of that can be made open source in the sense that anyone should be able to download it, take a look at it, understand how it works, why it works, what it's doing, and who it's doing it for. And all of this can be bounded with a sunset clause that an app can automatically delete itself. It can automatically delete data after 14 days or after two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. It doesn't matter. But that these systems can be designed to literally self-destruct so that when we are done, when we are on the other side of this crisis, And we don't need these kinds of tools to track our proximity to other people, that these tools themselves can simply vanish from our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't still be asking the same questions about how these tools will be used today and in the future. We're probably going to be asking these questions for a long time to come. But if we want to feel at least not slimy when we're getting that great big loving hug from Big Brother, starting with transparency and probity and openness with the sunset clause, that's probably not a bad place to start. So has our conversation gotten you to thinking about all the ways we can protect both our privacy and our health? If so, we would love to hear from you. Drop by our website or leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. 
big thanks to John Tonkin and Genevieve Bell for coming on to our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci asking you to stay safe and thanking you for listening.